Episode 331, Chapter 1 of North and South. Book talk begins at 16 minutes. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 331, Sorry Mr. Jakes. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hi there. Long time no talk. Thank you for my hiatus. I was a little busy, you may have noticed. Welcome to all of our new listeners, and hello and welcome back to all of our longtime listeners. I am so excited to be able to bring you this new book, North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell, because it's so much better than I thought it was going to be. I really, I know our Victorian scholar last year during Jane Eyre waxed rhapsodic about Cranford and about North and South, but I hadn't really read any Gaskell before, and so I went, well, I'll take a look and see, and I was hooked. I'm going to read everything by this woman, and you'll see why very shortly. But first, for our new listeners, here's how things work. At the beginning of the show, there's a little personal crafty chat, stuff that's going on, things that you might be interested in. I'll point out links that are going to be in the show notes so that you can go take a look. And then I will start what I call the book talk, where I let you know things to look out for, words that you might not know because nobody uses them anymore, uh, historical context and weirdness that just might be lost on a modern audience. And I fill you in with those details. And then we play the chapter of the audiobook. And this time we have the audiobook being read for us by a professional audible book reader, Barbara Edelman, who is also a listener. And she's she's just worked her buns off on this one for us. And it's so exciting to be able to bring it to you. And then usually after the chapter has played, I have a couple of things to say to wrap up the episode, and then you're on your way. Usually the episodes come in somewhere between 45 minutes and 55 minutes. Sometimes the chapters are very long and they go over, and there's sometimes just not a lot we can do about that. But you can usually expect, if you have an hour-long commute, (laughs) I'll be with you for almost the entire time. So January was a busy month. Those of you who read the Mama Own Knits blog or are on the Craftlet Facebook site, you've probably seen a surprising amount of activity for what was supposed to be a month off in order to prepare for Elizabeth Gaskell's book. And some of that was because I knew that I wouldn't be able to do this one thing if I tried to do it while I was also podcasting. And that was the Cognitive Anchoring blog. 
Now, it all started because about six months ago, I ran across a book by a woman named Nina Amir, and I will link to this from the show notes, called How to Blog a Book. And as you know, if you listened last year, I gave a speech to the uh, Common Cod Fiber Guild. It's the best logo for a fiber guild ever. Uh, Common Cod Fiber Guild up in Boston. And I did this talk on cognitive anchoring, which I know other people have uh, talked about or alluded to, but nobody really named it. And so, modestly, I called this thing cognitive anchoring. And what it comes down to is when someone, you, me, anyone, knits or crochets or doodles something automatic or you're uh, weaving Weaving is especially good, but weaving is not entirely portable if you have a big loom. Um, anything that's repetitive, that can be done with a certain level of automaticity, and that you don't have to look at in order to accomplish, when you're doing that kind of handwork, you are able to listen better. Some of us just need to have monkey mind tamed and one of the best ways to do that is by doing something automatic with your hands. Uh, doodling, not like zentangling doodling, but just doodle-doodling is very effective. So is endless stockinette on the back of a sweater, uh, going around and around and around on a vanilla sock, or even something simple like an old shale lace pattern, something that you've had memorized for the last 15 years. This is something you can do automatically. Well, the multiple benefits to your mind, to your brain, for these kinds of activities are enormous. And some of the data was really quite staggering. And I was very frustrated because I couldn't find the time to write the speech and turn it into a book. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, this is dumb. I could blog the book. So little pieces of each chapter as I go. And it's not a very long book because I'm, I've been trying to write it for normal people and not brain scientists. So I don't go into all the details of how they conducted their research and what their methodology was and all of that stuff. It, I could have gone on for days about all of that. But instead, I just tried to distill the information in a way that's useful so that if you are the kind of person who has been stuck in a meeting trying to doodle so that you can pay attention to the boring stuff that they're telling you, but important, boring, but important, uh, and your boss has criticized you or said, when you're ready to listen, or something offensive like that. Now you actually have a website you can point them to and say, look, this is why I'm trying to knit in the meetings. It's not because I don't want to pay attention. It's because this is the way I can pay attention. And now I have the data there on the web for you at, I know this is tricky, cognitiveanchoring.com. All one word, uh, easy enough to find. And actually, by the time this podcast posts, we'll be almost done with the bulk of the book. I've been getting lovely feedback on it. And I think even one of the big weaving guilds in the UK is following it now. And it's very exciting. So that was one of the things that I was doing during the hiatus. Uh, the other thing was preparing for a thing this Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I will be presenting a video I know. I was terrified. I'm recording this alone in my house. You would think I'd be okay, but no being on camera, said Heather, the theater major, was suddenly horrifying. I'm so used to just talking to a microphone and a screen that having to have a camera was really off-putting. But I'm doing a video for the Blogger Book Fair, 
and this is a, a relatively new, it's been going on for a couple of years. Uh, this is their workshop portion in February. And then I think in June or July, they have a blogger book festival where you can find all of these books that people who are also bloggers have been working on. So if you want to hear the sordid history of, of publishing in my life, you can find out more and uh, and the lessons that I've learned from all of this at the Blogger Book Fair. And there will be a link in the show notes so you can go and look at that. Uh, a new giveaway on this podcast. We've had giveaways all week leading up to today. But the, the new giveaway for the month of February, the Craftlet Raffle, is a fabulous crocheted wrap book from Tammy Hildebrand. You may know her. She's the head of uh, the Crochet Guild, I think. She's awesome. I got answers back in a little Q&A email thing that we did back and forth, and I just totally fell in love with her. She is my kind of people, and I am so excited to be able to share this book with you and to be able to offer it as a raffle for this month. And if you are not a crocheter yet, but you've been wondering about it and toying with the idea, please enter the raffle. This is the book for you because she has structured it so that each type of crochet technique has three patterns that go along with it. A beginning one, an intermediate one, and an advanced one. The progression looks really sound to me. It's one of the best put together books conceptually for that. And if you are a knitter who has been in the poo-pooing crochet camp, I really urge you to take a second look at this book. Uh, over on the Mama O Knits site, I have the Q&A with Tammy. You can read all about how the book is constructed and see some pictures of some of these wraps, these, these shawls and, and wrap designs that she's come up with. And I think you'll be surprised that they're crocheted. And again, it's because she's teaching six specific techniques during the course of this book. And some of those techniques don't look like knitting and they don't look like what you're thinking crochet looks like. They're very open. They're very lacy. They're very airy. They're beautiful. So very excited about Tammy's book. That will be raffled off at the end of the month of February. The Halo of Hope podcaster throwdown. Halos of Hope podcaster throwdown is still going on just for a little bit longer. And I know that Team Craftlet has just completely fallen apart, which is kind of our way. We're busy people. We have long commutes. We have a lot to do. I know you. <laughs> I know you because you write to me. So there. Uh, if you can make a hat, please do. If you can't make a hat, but you would like to donate, this is uh, there's a link in the show notes. You can read more about the Halos of Hope uh, group. It's a not-for-profit they are getting and distributing hats to uh, women who have uh, been going through chemo and radiation and need something warm on their head. So that's the nice thing to do for others. If you would like something nice to do for yourself, uh, right before Christmas, <laughs> I realized that I had lost my recipe book. I don't know if you if you remember this from from last December. But so many of you sent in recipes that I was able to put together kind of an ad hoc craftlet holiday recipe book. And there's lots of really interesting recipes in there, things that I had not anticipated or, rec or expected to see. Uh, we have a really interesting broad range appearing in this book. But the cool thing is it's an ebook, 
And since I released the first edition of it, I've received two more recipes from people who just were busy because it's us. And I have a feeling that there might be even more recipes out there. So don't hesitate to send them in. They can't, obviously, they can't be proprietary. They can't be something that somebody invented and it's in a cookbook that you have to pay for and stuff like that. I'm talking about family recipes that have been passed down that are maybe really unique to you and your family. Send in the story, send in a picture if you've got one, send in the recipe and any tips or hints or modifications that you've used in the past. We have uh, a couple of recipes that have instructions for high altitude cooking. We have uh, modifications for toppings that people have sent in. It's been fantastic. And it just makes me happy. So uh, I'm going to wait another couple of weeks. I'll put out the second edition. And then, you know, as we get towards the holidays again in probably October, I'll put the call out and see if anybody has more stuff because this is endlessly updatable. And I love that. The other books of note right now, uh, Novel Socks, the eight sock patterns that are inspired by the characters in my novel Grounded. That ebook is out and available and complete. And uh, let's see, there are kits you can get from Happy Fuzzy Yarns. And I have started seeing some of the finished socks appearing on Ravelry, and it is really wonderful to see. And I have my own pair of Mina's protective socks that Nanette the nanny knit for me. They almost killed her. They are heavily cabled. <laughs> but she did, and she gave them back to me, which was really sweet. And they warm my feet in the winter because they are protective socks. I also think I blew it last fall. I got an email from one of our listeners, Julia, and she had been zentangling a mannequin this is so cool. And I think I totally forgot in the kind of crazy of fall and school starting up and everything, I forgot to post the picture. So this picture will be on the show notes because it's awesome. So that I wanted to rectify that situation. I felt like such a schmo when I found that printout of the picture and went, oh, right. Yeah, that was supposed to happen. So now it's finally happening. Let's see what else before we start the book. Oh, uh, we have passed the halfway point in Bleak House over on the subscriber feed. And if you're if you're a new listener, um, Craftlet is free and always will be. But if you are interested in supporting the show, you can subscribe to a premium feed either as a streaming subscriber where you listen on a smartphone or tablet device on a free app or or on your computer from the website craftlit.libsyn.com slash podcast. Or if you are kicking it old school and prefer to use a iPod or iRiver or some kind of MP3 player, you can get a download-only subscription, and that one goes through PayPal. The other one goes through Libsyn. Uh, download-only goes through PayPal, and then once, sometimes twice a month, depending on how the episodes pan out with their length and everything, uh, there will be a new file that is uploaded to the downloading site, and I'll ping you with a newsletter and let you know it's there, and then you can get that. Uh, when I have new patterns, which I haven't had for a while, uh, you will get them free as a subscriber, either as a downloading-only subscriber on that site, or now, hallelujah, via an email through the Libsyn 
site. And I think that's everything. Oh, it's $5 a month. Uh, for $5 a month, you get another four plus hours of audio and patterns, free patterns, whenever I've got them. Okay, I think that's everything. So, north and south. So right at the outset, before we get any further, just in case you're not entirely sold on this Gaskell person and this book, North and South, I wanted to read you an email that I received right before Christmas from a listener named Liz. It blew me away. I immediately wrote back and said, oh, can I read this, please? And she said, yes. So here we go. She writes, I was so pleased to hear the next book is North and South. I heard your interview last year with the marvelous academic who spoke so passionately about Elizabeth Gaskell, and I agreed with everything he said. North and South is not only a complex, really tight novel, but for me, in 2013, it has real resonances. I was born in a mill town north of Manchester, and my grandmother, who was born in 1903, would tell me the stories of her childhood. At 11, although she had passed the exams for secondary school, her father refused to pay and she left school to go and work in the mill. They had no clock in the house and were woken in time for their shift by the, and this is in quotes, knocker-upper, the man who knocked on the bedroom window with a long stick. She said that she never grew another inch after she went to work in the mill, and my children used to call her Tiny Nana because she was truly tiny. Her daughter, my mother, stayed in school and became a teacher. I, her granddaughter, was the first member of our family to go to university, and Nana was so very proud of me. She always encouraged me to be the best I could possibly be. As an adult, I married and settled in the southeast of England. After almost 25 years in the south, I still miss the north, the rough fell country, and the straight-talking people. I discovered north and south some years ago and fell in love with it. Margaret's confusion in moving to the North were reflected in mine over a century later in making the reverse move. The duality between men and women reflected for many women still in the workplace. The challenge of manual work versus intellectual pursuit, they all still have real resonances for us today. Cranford, Gaskell's other famous novel, is a delight, but it does feel very slight compared to North and South and her other novels. Her biography reveals a marvelous-sounding woman— devoted to her family, and interested in ribbons and dresses, but committed to her Unitarian religion and her writing. I think it was North and South that was first published in one of Dickens' monthly magazines, and I saw the original manuscript at an exhibition at the British Library last year. I felt as if it was the Holy Grail. But the best story was an argument that Elizabeth had with Dickens over her ending, I think, and she wouldn't do as Dickens recommended slash demanded. Dickens is reported to have said, Oh, that Mrs. Gaskell, if I were her husband, I would have to spank her. (laughs) As we know, Dickens, for all his virtues, could not deal with strong, independent women. Which, I think, Liz, is an understatement. (laughs) Dickens Dickens definitely had problems with women. And and one of the ways that we can tell uh, more explicitly than otherwise is that Gaskell wanted to call this novel Margaret or Margaret Hale, she wasn't sure. Mary Barton was one of her first uh, long works, and she was kind of going to follow that same step in this book, and Dickens wouldn't have anything of it. In fact, I think he changed the name without her knowing until it came out in the magazine Household Words, and suddenly it's North and South. 
Because for Dickens, this book was really about the duality, the relationship between the industrialized North and the agrarian South and the labor relations problems that were inherent in some of those differences. Whereas for Miss Gaskell, Mrs. Gaskell, this was a story about Margaret. And I, I think you will see fairly rapidly, certainly by, by the end of next week's episode, you'll, you'll see why Gaskell really wanted this to be very clearly Margaret's story. So regardless of what Dickens had to say, we know what the book is really about. Uh, the, that's not to say that the labor relations and, uh, and the dissension issues that come up into this book aren't important, just that it has more to do with how it affects Margaret and how she grows as she's learning about all this stuff than it is about educating the populace. That being said, though, this was considered at the time, uh, there was a phrase being thrown about called a, a condition of England novel. There were uh, novels like Dickens' Hard Times and um, uh, Shirley and The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, the, the Bronte sisters. And it was kind of a thing in this mid-Victorian era for some authors to set their romances or set their kind of epic tales, if you're Dickens, in a, a situation where something that was going on in England at the time could be played out within the fictional reality that, that they created. And by doing that, hope to give people some insight into what it's actually like to be a mill hand or a master or you know, fill in the blank. And I think that's really the place where North and South started to diverge for me because there's there, there are tropes, you know? It's like when we read an Austen novel, we know more or less what we're in for. We know her light touch. We know the way she could be funny. We know how her men were most often going to behave. There are just certain things that we could expect. And reading North and South, it's not Jane Eyre. It's certainly not Wuthering Heights. It's not Pride and Prejudice or Persuasion. It is really an interesting, completely unified thing of its own. And we haven't done a book like this on Craftlet before. So I was, that was part of why I was so jazzed about having a chance to bring it to you now. So obviously with a title like North and South, you're going to get a lot of duality in the book. It's kind of like Tale of Two Cities. You have two cities. Well, here we have two regions. And in the North, we have a place called Milton, which I know this is shocking, Milltown, right? It's really, it's Manchester. It's a stand-in for Manchester. And then in the South, we have Helston. And there's a Helston in Cornwall, but she talks about it being in Hampshire. I'm going to put up a map on the show notes so that you can localize where these things are in the UK if you've only ever visited or if you don't live there and aren't really sure. Uh, then you can kind of picture how great the distance is because it's it's a physical distance as well as a psychological distance. You'll start to hear rumblings of that in today's chapter you will get a lot of that in next week's chapters. We're going to do chapter two and three next week. And I will warn you, this opening chapter, the first time I read it, my reaction was, yawn. 
I was really not moved. When I was done with the book and I came back and I read the opening chapter again, I went, oh, right, okay, got it. Because again, since this isn't Jane Austen, when I came across a character, Aunt Shaw, there's a character who is Margaret's aunt. That's who Margaret is living with when the story opens in London. And Aunt Shaw strikes me as Mrs. Bennet, but she's not as funny. So now I'm kind of trying to figure out, well, who is she then? If she's not Mrs. Bennet, then how does she fit? And I can't answer that question for you directly yet. But what I can tell you is this. There's an Aunt Shaw, which means there's a mother. And the mother and Aunt Shaw have interesting parallels in their personalities. They're not identical by any stretch, but there are certain things that are very similar in both of them. And and that's an interesting, not quite contrast to pay attention to, because these are these are people we are going to be watching throughout the book. We will we will see everyone again. Uh, so you've got Aunt Shaw, who is not Mrs. Bennett. You have a lot of oh foofiness that's going on around a, uh, getting a, a wedding put together and planning for the wedding. There's a lot of talk about Indian shawls and how expensive they are. And if I can find some pictures of Victorian Indian shawls, I will put them in the show notes for you. I haven't been able to find any decent ones yet. Um, but one of the things that was very confusing to me, because it is not stated explicitly, is why was Margaret living in London with her aunt and her cousin, Edith, who is very pretty and, you know, foofy and <laughs> foofy in mind and dress. Uh, why is she living there when her parents are out in this pastoral hamlet in the country that she loves so much? You know, why was she taken away from there? And it, it took me a few times reading this, but I think what it came down to was that her parents simply knew that they would not be able to give her the opportunities that she they felt she deserved if she stayed in Halston. She needed to go to London for the for the education, for the, the social opportunities, for the museums, for all of those reasons and obviously hopefully to find a husband because if you can't have a job, then your job is to get a husband who'll provide for you. So I think that's why she's there. And I also think that that hints at one of the first conflicts in the book that gets, it, it gets hinted at, but you don't really get a clear picture of it. The, the upshot is that Aunt Shaw and Margaret's mother came from a good family with money. And Aunt Shaw married for status and Margaret's mother married for love. And she married a clergyman. And therein lies one of the most confusing parts of the book. Absolutely. And we'll deal with it more next week about Mr. Hale, Margaret's father, and and his uh, situation within the church at the time. But for now, uh, I want you to let this chapter wash over you and recognize that even in a couple of weeks, you may hit a point where you go, I want to go back and listen to that chapter again. Because it's, like I said, it doesn't fit a trope that I was familiar with, which sounds so crazy, right? Because it's a romance. We know that there is going to be a romance in this book. That is the time period. 
It is a woman writing the book. She is not George Eliot. So, so therefore, there will be a romance. And Margaret will be our protagonist throughout the book, just like Jane Eyre was the protagonist through Jane Eyre. And there are some interesting parallels. You can see why Gaskell and Charlotte Bronte were friends. But Margaret is neither as uh, potentially snarky as Elizabeth Bennet, nor is she as hard-nosed and tragically difficult as Jane Eyre can be. She is her own person. And you start to get a feel for it in chapter one. You start to get a, a, a feel for what kind of person Margaret is. She is not a 100% passive person. You may think she is, but that's one of the places where you want to go back and listen again later. So she's not Lucy Minette. Edith is, <laughs> but not not Margaret. So without any further yammering, I am going to hand you over to the very capable hands of Barbara Edelman, a listener of Craftlet, an audible reader, a professional audible reader who is reading this book for us. So here we go with chapter one of Elizabeth Gaskell's fabulous book, North and South. Chapter One Haste to the Wedding Wooed and Married and All Edith, said Margaret gently. Edith! But as Margaret half suspected, Edith had fallen asleep. She lay curled up on the sofa in the back drawing room in Harley Street, looking very lovely in her white muslin and blue ribbons. If Titania had ever been dressed in white muslin and blue ribbons and had fallen asleep on a crimson damask sofa in a back drawing room, Edith might have been taken for her. Margaret was struck afresh by her cousin's beauty. They had grown up together from childhood, and all along Edith had been remarked upon by everyone except Margaret for her prettiness. Margaret had never thought about it until the last few days, when the prospect of soon losing her companion seemed to give force to every sweet quality and charm which Edith possessed. They had been talking about wedding dresses and wedding ceremonies and Captain Lennox and what he had told Edith about her future life at Corfu, where his regiment was stationed, and the difficulty of keeping a piano in good tune a difficulty which Edith seemed to consider as one of the most formidable that could befall her in her married life, and what gowns she should want in the visits to Scotland which would immediately succeed her marriage. But the whispered tone had latterly become more drowsy, and Margaret, after a pause of a few minutes, found, as she fancied, that in spite of the buzz in the next room, Edith had rolled herself up into a soft ball of muslin and ribbon and silken curls and gone off into a peaceful little after-dinner nap. Margaret had been on the point of telling her cousin of some of the plans and visions which she entertained as to her future life in the country parsonage, where her father and mother lived, and where her bright holidays had always been passed, though for the last ten years her Aunt Shaw's house had been considered as her home. But, in default of a listener, she had to brood over the change in her life silently as heretofore. It was a happy brooding, 
although tinged with regret at being separated for an indefinite time from her gentle aunt and dear cousin. As she thought of the delight of filling the important post of only daughter and Helston Parsonage, pieces of the conversation out of the next room came upon her ears. Her aunt Shaw was talking to the five or six ladies who had been dining there, and whose husbands were still in the dining room. They were the familiar acquaintances of the house, neighbors whom Mrs. Shaw called friends because she happened to dine with them more frequently than with any other people, and because if she or Edith wanted anything from them or they from her, they did not scruple to make a call at each other's houses before luncheon. These ladies and their husbands were invited in their capacity of friends to eat a farewell dinner in honor of Edith's approaching marriage. Edith had rather objected to this arrangement, for Captain Lennox was expected to arrive by a late train this very evening, but although she was a spoiled child, she was too careless and idle to have a very strong will of her own, and gave way when she found that her mother had absolutely ordered those extra delicacies of the season which are always supposed to be efficacious against immoderate grief at farewell dinners. She contented herself by leaning back in her chair, merely playing with the food on her plate and looking grave and absent, while all around her were enjoying the mot of Mr. Gray, the gentleman who always took the bottom of the table at Mrs. Shaw's dinner parties and asked Edith to give them some music in the drawing room. Mr. Gray was particularly agreeable over this farewell dinner, and the gentlemen stayed downstairs longer than usual. It was very well they did, to judge from the fragments of conversation which Margaret overheard. I suffered too much myself, not that I was not extremely happy with the poor dear general, but still disparity of age is a drawback, one that I was resolved Edith should not have to encounter. Of course, Without any maternal partiality, I foresaw that the dear child was likely to marry early. Indeed, I had often said that I was sure she would be married before she was nineteen. I had quite a prophetic feeling when Captain Lennox, and here the voice dropped into a whisper, but Margaret could easily supply the blank. The course of true love in Edith's case had run remarkably smooth. Mrs. Shaw had given way to the presentiment, as she expressed it, and had rather urged on the marriage, although it was below the expectations which many of Edith's acquaintances had formed for her, a young and pretty heiress. But Mrs. Shaw said that her only child should marry for love, and sighed emphatically, as if love had not been her motive for marrying the general. Mrs. Shaw enjoyed the romance of the present engagement rather more than her daughter, not but that Edith was very thoroughly and properly in love. Still, she would certainly have preferred a good house in Belgravia to all the picturesqueness of the life which Captain Lennox described at Corfu. The very parts which made Margaret glow as she listened, Edith pretended to shiver and shudder at, partly for the pleasure she had in being coaxed out of her dislike by her fond lover, and partly because anything of a gypsy or makeshift life was really distasteful to her. Yet, 
had anyone come with a fine house and a fine estate and a fine title to boot, Edith would still have clung to Captain Lennox while the temptation lasted. When it was over, it is possible she might have had little qualms of ill-concealed regret that Captain Lennox could not have united in his person everything that was desirable. In this she was but her mother's child, who after deliberately marrying General Shaw with no warmer feeling than respect for his character and establishment, was constantly, though quietly, bemoaning her hard lot in being united to one whom she could not love. I have spared no expense in her trousseau, were the next words Margaret heard. She has all the beautiful Indian shawls and scarfs the general gave to me, but which I shall never wear again. She is a lucky girl, replied another voice, which Margaret knew to be that of Mrs. Gibson, a lady who was taking a double interest in the conversation from the fact of one of her daughters having been married within the last few weeks. Helen had set her heart upon an Indian shawl, but really, when I found what an extravagant price was asked, I was obliged to refuse her. She will be quite envious when she hears of Edith having Indian shawls. What kind are they? Delhi? with the lovely little borders. Margaret heard her aunt's voice again, but this time it was as if she had raised herself up from her half-recumbent position and were looking into the more dimly lighted back drawing room. Edith? Edith? cried she, and then she sank as if wearied by the exertion. Margaret stepped forward. Edith is asleep, Aunt Shaw. Is it anything I can do? All the ladies said, poor child, on receiving this distressing intelligence about Edith, and the minute lapdog in Mrs. Shaw's arms began to bark, as if excited by the burst of pity. Hush, Tiny, you naughty little girl, you will awaken your mistress. It was only to ask Edith if she would tell Newton to bring down her shawls. Perhaps you would go, Margaret, dear. Margaret went up into the old nursery at the very top of the house, where Newton was busy getting up some laces which were required for the wedding. While Newton went, not without a muttered grumbling, to undo the shawls, which had already been exhibited four or five times that day, Margaret looked round upon the nursery, the first room in that house with which she had become familiar nine years ago when she was brought all untamed from the forest, to share the home, the play, and the lessons of her cousin, Edith. She remembered the dark, dim look of the London nursery, presided over by an austere and ceremonious nurse who was terribly particular about clean hands and torn frocks. She recollected the first tea up there, separate from her father and aunt, who were dining somewhere down below an infinite depth of stairs for unless she were up in the sky, the child thought, they must be deep down in the bowels of the earth. At home, before she came to live in Harley Street, her mother's dressing room had been her nursery, and as they kept early hours in the country parsonage, Margaret had always had her meals with her father and mother. Oh, well did the tall, stately girl of eighteen remember the tears shed 
with such wild passion of grief by the little girl of nine as she hid her face under the bedclothes in that first night, and how she was bidden not to cry by the nurse because it would disturb Miss Edith, and how she had cried as bitterly but more quietly till her newly seen, grand, pretty aunt had come softly upstairs with Mr. Hale to show him his little sleeping daughter. Then the little Margaret had hushed her sobs and tried to lie quiet as if asleep, for fear of making her father unhappy by her grief, which she dared not express before her aunt, and which she rather thought it was wrong to feel at all after the long hoping and planning and contriving they had gone through at home, before her wardrobe could be arranged so as to suit her grander circumstances, and before papa could leave his parish to come up to London, even for a few days. Now she had got to love the old nursery, though it was but a dismantled place, and she looked all round with a kind of cat-like regret at the idea of leaving it forever in three days. Ah, Newton, said she, I think we shall all be sorry to leave this dear old room. Indeed, miss, I shan't for one. My eyes are not so good as they were, and the light here is so bad that I can't see to mend laces except just at the window, where there's always a shocking draught, enough to give one one's death of cold. Well, I dare say you will have both good light and plenty of warmth at Naples. You must keep as much of your darning as you can till then. Thank you, Newton. I can take them down. You're busy. So Margaret went down, laden with shawls, and snuffing up their spicy eastern smell. Her aunt asked her to stand as a sort of lay figure on which to display them, as Edith was still asleep. No one thought about it, but Margaret's tall, finely made figure in the black silk dress which she was wearing as mourning for some distant relative of her father's set off the long, beautiful folds of the gorgeous shawls that would have half-smothered Edith. Margaret stood right under the chandelier, quite silent and passive, while her aunt adjusted the draperies. Occasionally, as she was turned round, she caught a glimpse of herself in the mirror over the chimney-piece and smiled at her own appearance there, the familiar features in the usual garb of a princess. She touched the shawls gently as they hung round her and took a pleasure in their soft feel and their brilliant colors and rather liked to be dressed in such splendor, enjoying it much as a child would do with a quiet, pleased smile on her lips. Just then the door opened and Mr. Henry Lennox was suddenly announced. Some of the ladies started back as if half ashamed of their feminine interest in dress. Mrs. Shaw held out her hand to the newcomer. Margaret stood perfectly still, thinking she might be yet wanted as a sort of block for the shawls, but looking at Mr. Lennox with a bright, amused face, as if sure of his sympathy and her sense of the ludicrousness at being thus surprised. Her aunt was so much absorbed in asking Mr. Henry Lennox, who had not been able to come to dinner, all sorts of questions about his brother the bridegroom, his sister the bridesmaid, coming with the captain from Scotland for the occasion, 
and various other members of the Lennox family, that Margaret saw she was no more wanted as shawl-bearer, and devoted herself to the amusement of the other visitors, whom her aunt had, for the moment, forgotten. Almost immediately, Edith came in from the back drawing-room, winking and blinking her eyes at the stronger light, shaking back her slightly ruffled curls, and altogether looking like the sleeping beauty just startled from her dreams. Even in her slumber, she had instinctively felt that a Lennox was worth rousing herself for, and she had a multitude of questions to ask about dear Janet, the future unseen sister-in-law, for whom she professed so much affection that if Margaret had not been very proud, she might have almost felt jealous of the mushroom rival. As Margaret sank rather more into the background on her aunt's joining the conversation, she saw Henry Lennox directing his look towards a vacant seat near her, and she knew perfectly well that as soon as Edith released him from her questioning, he would take possession of that chair. She had not been quite sure from her aunt's rather confused account of his engagements whether he would come that night. It was almost a surprise to see him, and now she was sure of a pleasant evening. He liked and disliked pretty nearly the same things that she did. Margaret's face was lightened up into an honest, open brightness. By and by, he came. She received him with a smile which had not a tinge of shyness or self-consciousness in it. Well, I suppose you are all in the depths of business. Ladies' business, I mean. Very different to my business, which is the real true law business. Playing with shawls is very different work to drawing up settlements. Ah, I knew how you would be amused to find us all so occupied in admiring finery. But, really, Indian shawls are very perfect things of their kind. I have no doubt they are. Their prices are very perfect, too. Nothing wanting. The gentlemen came dropping in one by one, and the buzz and noise deepened in tone. This is your last dinner party, is it not? There are no more before Thursday. No, I think after this evening we shall feel at rest, which I am sure I have not done for many weeks. At least, that kind of rest when the hands have nothing more to do and all the arrangements are complete for an event which must occupy one's head and heart. I shall be glad to have time to think, and I am sure Edith will. I am not so sure about her, but I can fancy that you will. Whenever I have seen you lately, you have been carried away by a whirlwind of some other person's making. Yes, said Margaret, rather sadly, remembering the never-ending commotion about trifles that had been going on for more than a month past. I wonder if a marriage must always be preceded by what you call a whirlwind, or whether in some cases there might not rather be a calm and peaceful time just before it. Cinderella's godmother ordering the trousseau, the wedding breakfast, writing the notes of invitation, for instance, said Mr. Lennox, laughing. But are all these quite necessary troubles? asked Margaret, looking up straight at him for an answer. A sense of indescribable weariness of all the arrangements for a pretty effect 
in which Edith had been busied as supreme authority for the last six weeks, oppressed her just now, and she really wanted someone to help her to a few pleasant, quiet ideas connected with a marriage. Oh, of course, he replied with a change to gravity in his tone. There are forms and ceremonies to be gone through, not so much to satisfy oneself as to stop the world's mouth without which stoppage there would be very little satisfaction in life. But how would you have a wedding arranged? Oh, I have never thought much about it. Only I should like it to be a very fine summer morning, and I should like to walk to church through the shade of trees and not to have so many bridesmaids and to have no wedding breakfast. I dare say I am resolving against the very things that have given me the most trouble just now. No, I don't think you are. The idea of stately simplicity accords well with your character. Margaret did not quite like this speech. She winced away from it more, from remembering former occasions on which he had tried to lead her into a discussion in which he took the complimentary part about her own character and ways of going on. She cut his speech rather short by saying, It is natural for me to think of Helston Church and the walk to it, rather than of driving up to a London church in the middle of a paved street. Tell me about Helston. You have never described it to me. I should like to have some idea of the place you will be living in when 96 Harley Street will be looking dingy and dirty and dull and shut up. Is Helston a village or a town in the first place? Oh, only a hamlet. I don't think I could call it a village at all. There is the church and a few houses near it on the green. Cottages, rather, with roses growing all over them. And flowering all the year round, especially at Christmas. Make your picture complete, said he. No, replied Margaret, somewhat annoyed. I am not making a picture. I am trying to describe Helston as it really is. You should not have said that. I am penitent, he answered. Only, it really sounded like a village in a tale rather than in real life. And so it is, replied Margaret eagerly. All the other places in England that I have seen seem so hard and prosaic-looking after the new forest. Helston is like a village in a poem, in one of Tennyson's poems, but I won't try and describe it any more. You would only laugh at me if I told you what I think of it, what it really is. Indeed, I would not, but I see you are going to be very resolved. Well, then, tell me that which I should like still better to know, what the parsonage is like. Oh, I can't describe my home. It is home, and I can't put its charm into words. I submit you are rather severe tonight, Margaret. How? said she, turning her large, soft eyes round full upon him. I did not know I was. Why, because I made an unlucky remark, you will neither tell me what Helston is like, nor will you say anything about your home, though I have told you how much I want to hear about both the latter especially. But indeed, I cannot tell you about my own home. I don't 
quite think it is a thing to be talked about, unless you knew it. Well then, pausing for a moment, tell me what you do there. Here you read or have lessons or otherwise improve your mind to the middle of the day, take a walk before lunch, go a drive with your aunt after, and have some kind of engagement in the evening. There, now, fill up your day at Hilston. Shall you ride, drive, or walk? Walk, decidedly. We have no horse, not even for Papa. He walks to the very extremity of his parish. The walks are so beautiful, it would be a shame to drive, almost a shame to ride. Shall you garden much? That, I believe, is a proper employment for young ladies in the country. I don't know. I am afraid I shan't like such hard work. Archery parties, picnics, race balls, hunt balls. Oh, no, said she, laughing. Papa's living is very small, and even if we were near such things, I doubt if I should go to them. I see. You won't tell me anything. You will only tell me that you are not going to do this and that. Before the vacation ends, I think I shall pay you a call and see what you really do employ yourself in. I hope you will. Then you will see for yourself how beautiful Helston is. Now I must go. Edith is sitting down to play, and I just know enough of music to turn over the leaves for her. And besides, Aunt Shaw won't like us to talk. Edith played brilliantly. In the middle of the piece, the door half opened, and Edith saw Captain Lennox hesitating whether to come in. She threw down her music and rushed out of the room, leaving Margaret standing confused and blushing to explain to the astonished guests what vision had shown itself to cause Edith's sudden flight. Captain Lennox had come earlier than was expected. Or was it really so late? They looked at their watches, were duly shocked, and took their leave. Then Edith came back, glowing with pleasure, half shyly, half proudly, leading in her tall, handsome captain. His brother shook hands with him, and Mrs. Shaw welcomed him in her gentle, kindly way, which had always something plaintive in it, arising from the long habit of considering herself a victim to an uncongenial marriage. Now that the general being gone, she had every good of life, with as few drawbacks as possible. She had been rather perplexed to find an anxiety, if not a sorrow. She had, however, of late, settled upon her own health as a source of apprehension. She had a nervous little cough whenever she thought about it, and some complacent doctor ordered her just what she desired. A winter in Italy. Mrs. Shaw had as strong wishes as most people, but she never liked to do anything from the open and acknowledged motive of her own goodwill and pleasure. She preferred being compelled to gratify herself by some other person's command or desire. She really did persuade herself that she was submitting to some hard external necessity, and thus she was able to moan and complain in her soft manner all the time she was in reality doing just what she liked. It was in this way she began to speak of her own journey to Captain Lennox, who assented as in duty bound to all his future mother-in-law said, while his eyes sought Edith, who was busying herself in rearranging the tea-table 
and ordering up all sorts of good things, in spite of his assurances that he had dined within the last two hours. Mr. Henry Lennox stood leaning against the chimney-piece, amused with the family scene. He was close by his handsome brother. He was the plain one in a singularly good-looking family. But his face was intelligent, keen, and mobile, and now and then Margaret wondered what it was that he could be thinking about while he kept his silence, but was evidently observing with an interest that was slightly sarcastic all that Edith and she were doing. The sarcastic feeling was called out by Mrs. Shaw's conversation with his brother. It was separate from the interest which was excited by what he saw. He thought it a pretty sight to see the two cousins so busy in their little arrangements about the table. Edith chose to do most herself. She was in a humor to enjoy showing her lover how well she could behave as a soldier's wife. She found out that the water in the urn was cold and ordered up the great kitchen tea kettle, the only consequence of which was that when she met it at the door and tried to carry it in, it was too heavy for her, and she came in pouting with a black mark on her muslin gown and a little round white hand indented by the handle, which she took to show to Captain Lennox, just like a hurt child, and, of course, the remedy was the same in both cases. Margaret's quickly adjusted spirit lamp was the most efficacious contrivance, though not so like the gypsy encampment which Edith, in some of her moods, chose to consider the nearest resemblance to a barrack life. After this evening, all was bustle till the wedding was over. And so there is our first little moment of duality. You have Margaret, who's perfectly capable of going upstairs and getting the Indian shawls and even coming up with a, a positive spin on moving to Naples for Newton so that she wouldn't be so prissy about how bad the light was. And and then the thing that I, I thought was so interesting for here's here's our protagonist. Here's the girl that we're supposed to like. And when she starts talking to Henry Lennox about Halston and He's asking her questions about her home. And this is a guy who she's been friends with, clearly, because when he shows up, she smiles, she's happy. She has a place next to her where he can sit. They, they're clearly very familiar with each other. And yet she gets a little snippy with him. You shouldn't have asked that. You shouldn't have said that. And it's like, wow, that's, that's not the kind of ingenue main character person that I was expecting. Even Elizabeth Bennet, I don't think, in the very first chapter, would have been quite so snippy. So I found I found Margaret to be fascinating from the get-go. I couldn't quite pin her down. And I have a feeling that that feeling will continue for a little while longer. But next week, next week in chapters two and three, we pick up with the wedding and then after the wedding. and uh, And of course, all of the implications of that since... Margaret's been living in London on Holly Street with her cousin, and now her cousin's going off to Corfu, which for those of you who love the air affair, Corfu was the place that uh, became kind of the epicenter of the beginning of the Crimean War. <laughs> just just tie those loose ends for you. Uh, <laughs> I, I luckily didn't have anything in my mouth when I read that because I would have done a spit take since... Uh, 
since the Crimean War plays such a crucial role in Jasper Ford's The Air Affair, which a lot of us read and uh, and discussed over on Ravelry. And if you are a knitter or crocheter and you belong to Ravelry.com, please head over to the Craftlet group. Lots of discussion happens over there. I am usually too busy, honestly, to pay very close attention, but I can tell you this. The people who listen to this podcast are really smart and really awesome. And all sorts of interesting discussions happen over there. And every once in a while, someone will instant message me or, or ear burn me, and I'll I'll go over and see what everybody's been up to. And if you are not on Ravelry, but you are on Facebook, there is a Craft Lit Facebook page, which is kind of, it's bizarre. I don't really understand how this happened, but there's an official-ish Craft Lit Facebook page. And the podcast posts to there. I know how that part happened. And that means that if you're on Facebook and it's easier for you, you can listen to Craftlet directly there. There's also a Facebook group page for Craftlet where everybody can post stuff. I don't really understand the distinction between the two, but I belong to both of them and people do different things in different places. So there isn't a lot that goes on, but people do every once in a while post really funny literary-ish things that pop up on the internet. So so if you're on Facebook, that is something else. I am also, if you're new to the podcast, I'm also on Twitter. I most often post under my at Mama O because my knitting blog is Mama O Knits Too Much. So if you want to follow me, that's the at sign and M-A-M-A-O. And that's it for this week. We, we hit the hour mark. And uh, I hope your commute was good or your knitting has been spectacular or your crochet has been lovely and built the way that the wraps are built in that crochet book. Oh my gosh, I'm still, I'm going to dream about them. They're beautiful. And uh, and I will be back with you next Friday at three o'clock. I've been pretty good for the last couple of years about posting Friday at three. And I think, I think I'll be able to maintain that for a while. Oh, last thing. If any of you live in Pennsylvania, on the eastern edge of Pennsylvania, please contact me because it looks like we're going to have to move. I know, right? Which means I'm going to have to come up with another opening for the podcast. I'm not thrilled about that. And um, right now, the places that are winning the competition are Newton, Yardley, New Hope, and Doylestown. And, uh, and, for the love of all that is holy, it just has to be cheaper than living in Northern Virginia. Because this is ridiculous. We actually went on a website that compares cost of living place to place to place. And it uh, ranks it on a its own scale, but then it also ranks it as a percentage. And where we live is 300% more expensive than pretty much anywhere except the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Just, just to put it into perspective, you wouldn't believe what the rents are here. We've been hemorrhaging money, so we're we're getting out, and uh, and so we're looking for uh, Pennsylvania. How are the schools? No, really, you know what my boys are like. They're quirky, geeky kids. How are the schools? What are the people like? Will we find our people? Uh, are you there? because that would be awesome. I'm actually going to go up in early March, I think, and do some secret spy reconnaissance and see if I can 
divine anything by lurking. I will lurk a lot in those four places and, and see what I can figure out. So if you have any hints or information, uh, that would be great. I did find over by uh, Rittenhouse Square in Philly, the Rosie's Yarn Cellar. I know, Rosie's Yarn Cellar. It's great for my novel because the main character's name is Rosie. Rosie's Yarn Cellar, great little store, loved, loved the women who were working there. It was a Sunday morning. They had just opened. And I mean, that could be a miserable time to work, but they were so awesome. So huge shout out to that yarn store. I know there are others in Philly. I just haven't, I haven't been to them. So Rosie's loved it. There's also an Irish pub around the corner that was really good <laughs> because that's the important part. Yarn, yarn and cider. That's where it's at right now. Ah, and I nearly forgot. Why is this podcast called Sorry, Mr. Jakes? Because a lot of people have thought that we were doing John Jakes' Civil War series, North and South. And and the short answer is we can't do material that's still under copyright on this. That's why we listen to the classics, because they're free. So, sorry, Mr. Jakes, not your North and South. All right. I hope you have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlet.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlet app to access premium subscriber content. Craftlet is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.